bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, November 17th, 2020. Today's podcast is a special podcast. We're going to have a discussion about proposed regulations concerning the average income test for low-income housing tax credit properties. When finalized, these proposed regulations will have widespread implications for low-income housing tax credit property owners and allocating agencies. That's why we at Novogratik are tracking this issue very closely. Now, this episode of the podcast is going to focus on what the regulations propose and how they could affect low-income families who rely on affordable rental housing. This is an especially timely topic in that the IRS is accepting comments on the proposed regulations until December 29th of this year. Now, joining me for this discussion are three very special guests. We have Thomas Stagg, a partner of mine in Novogratz Bellevue, Washington office. We have Stephanie Nockin, who is a multifamily compliance consultant in Novogratz Austin, Texas office. And we also have Mark Shelburne, a Novogratz housing policy consultant who is based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Each of them serves clients nationally, and they also each bring their own areas of expertise and experience to today's discussion. I should also note, my three guests have been busy creating a variety of industry resources on this topic. In fact, this past Friday, they hosted a Novogratz webinar on the effects of the proposed average income test regulations. I'm sure many of you were attendees of last week's webinar. Now, if you work with the Long Housing Tax Credit and you missed last week's training, the good news is you can still purchase a recording of the webinar. Simply go to www.novaco.com training. The webinar is an hour and a half and provides a much more detailed look at the proposed regulations than we have time to discuss in this podcast episode. You can also read a blog post that Mark wrote on the topic. You can find it at www.novaco.com blog. And Stephanie also wrote an article on the proposed regulations, which will appear in the December issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. If you're not a journal subscriber already, you can subscribe today. Simply go to www.novico.com journal. And if you don't have a pin handy as you're listening to the podcast, no need to worry. I will share the links of the webinar to the blog post and to the journal subscription page in today's show notes. I'll tweet them out as well. So if you're ready, let's get started. So Thomas, Stephanie, and Mark, I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast today. And to begin, I think we should give listeners some background. I've mentioned average income test quite a bit so far. Can you, Mark, help explain and describe what the average income test is, what it provides, and how it's being used in connection with the low-income housing tax credit? The idea for the average income test goes back many years, and it was first proposed in the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act when it was initially introduced Uh, I believe it was back in 2016. And what happened was when Congress enacted the Consolidated Appropriations Act in March of 2018, it picked out uh, two provisions from the AHCIA. One of them was the 12.5% increase, which we're all very glad to have. And the other was the average income test. And what it does is create a third minimum set-aside And that is a concept that is important to keep in mind for all aspects of discussing average income is that it's a minimum set-aside test. And again, it's the third one. The previous two were, of course, the 40 at 60 and the 20 at 50. And this third test marked a huge shift in the housing credit program. 
easily the biggest change since Hera in 2008, and maybe the biggest change in the program's history, in that it allows a unit to be housing credit qualified, even if it is targeting households that are at either 70% or 80%, which again, that's absolutely groundbreaking for the program. The trade-off, though, is that in order to serve households at those higher income levels, the property has to serve a corresponding number of households below 60%, such that the average of the designations of all those units comes out to 60%. And developers and housing credit agencies across the country immediately started to make this program make this opportunity happen because it took effect right away. There was no uh, waiting period. It was allowed for any properties that had not yet completed their 8609s. And so it's been used in many, many different contexts. For new construction, it expands the market that the properties can serve. It allows uh, reaching households that otherwise would either be over income or not able to afford the unit. And it also is tremendously helpful in the rehabilitation context, where it means that the owner can set up their unit structure to correspond to the tenants who are already there so that the rents and income limits reflect the folks that are already in place. And so it's a tremendous allowance, a tremendous ability within the housing credit that unfortunately now is under some level of concern because of these proposed restrictions. Great. Thank you for that, Mark. That was a excellent overview. Thank you for that. I mean, I always think of it as it allows you, a property owner, to serve slightly higher income levels, a little bit more in the workforce housing range above 60%, but at the same time also allows a property owner to serve lower income families by using the extra income from those rents being paid on the more than 60% area median income tenants to help underwrite the cost of serving even lower income level tenants. So let's turn to you, Stephanie. Now that we've learned a little bit about specifically what the average income test is, can you let the listeners know about when a property owner would use the average income test and how they apply this set-aside? Because it is a set-aside. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat more about average income. And I think in its original conception, as it was contemplated by Congress, it really was a minimum set aside. Now, whether or not this new guidance we have complicates that approach is something I think we'll need to chat about. But if we're just looking at average income as a minimum set aside and as a tool, options for when an owner may want to use it. And I think you guys really hit the nail on the head when we talk about that missing kind of workforce housing, hitting that missing middle, but also being able to serve those lower populations. And so it really works well when you're dealing with ACK rehabs, particularly like RAD conversions, um, when you're dealing with tenants that are existing, you're having to certify them under Section 42. They may not be income eligible, but because of the conflict with the RAD program, they have a right to return to that unit. Prior to the average income option, an owner was put in kind of the position of having to decide, well, do I turn that into a market unit in perpetuity, or do I just lose credits until such time that I can occupy it with an eligible household? So that's one solution that average income presented to us was kind of covering that conflict between those two programs as it relates to like an acquisition rehab for RAD conversion. I'd also think it works well in high opportunity areas and likewise in rural areas because in the high opportunity areas, you're getting more of a market that hits that, that, that workforce housing that we're looking for. And in the rural areas, we're likely looking at households that have um, maybe lower income. 
And while states have often and generally required kind of deeper targeting, you know, we're used to managing that, those 20%, those 30%, what average income does is it, it automatically makes those kind of low income units under the program. And so noncompliance with those units would be subject to an 8823. We're probably kind of chat a little bit more about what noncompliance and the implication of noncompliance is. But I think what, what's interesting to remember about average income is that although it is a really great tool for these types of activities, because now a 20% unit, a 30% unit, 70% unit, and 80% unit are low income, anytime we have non-compliance in those units, it would trigger an 8823 event. Whereas if it was simply just a state requirement, we wouldn't have that associated event of compliance. And so for a consideration um, of an owner is that while we're broadening our audience, we're also kind of broadening the possibilities or the scope or the ability to have events of non-compliance. That's something to consider as you're approaching the idea of average income. Another consideration is, you know, when it kind of came out, it was like the, the shiny new toy everyone wanted for Christmas. It, it was the thing everyone wanted to do. And so I, I had a lot of folks really eager to use average income. And I would say, well, why do you want to use average income? It, it came into conversations where are you getting households that are ineligible at the 60% limit? You know, is that the reason why you want to expand the targeting of the income bands? And the answer would be like, oh, no, we're just having a hard lease up. And I'm like, well, then maybe average income isn't that fixed. And so uh, I think that something we should consider is that it's not the end all be all. It's not the fix for everything. Um, but I do hope that we can work through these proposed regulations and that it is a better tool for our usage. Another consideration that the challenge is layering on programs. Thomas, did you want to? Oh, no, when you're done, Stephanie, I had something interesting to add to your statement. So I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, go ahead. Just signifying that. Well, I think it was interesting. One of the first people I heard of that actually really incorporated this was a rural project. I think that we often think that this is going to be most beneficial in, you know, I'm up in Bellevue, Washington. We think it's going to be most beneficial in a market like that where you can go up and capture the 80% rent. But I would just like to point out that it has also been very beneficial in rural states as well. Uh, This uh, portfolio I'm thinking of was in the Dakotas, I believe. And it was beneficial there because they were finding a lot of people who were applying were either 40% and below or just just above 60%. And so they were having a hard time kind of leasing up their project. And so allowing them to open it up to an 80% average income allow them to capture this larger population, even though they weren't charging 80% rents because they weren't feasible in that market, it was really helping with occupancy and lease up issues. And so I do think it's important, especially in light of where we are politically right now to say that this works in both rural areas and large metropolitan areas kind of for different reasons, but it still has been very powerful in both. And that's such a really good point, Thomas. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because not only is it, you know, 20%, anything from 20 to 50%, of course, was less than 60%. So if you were doing traditional 40 to 60, they were income eligible. But if they moved into a 60% unit, it was likely they were paying a rent disproportionate to their actual income. And so what average income does for us is that it allows households at those designations to pay a rent that's more proportionate to their income, which again has an ability to better stabilize long-term occupancy at the property. I'm glad that you jumped in and brought that one up. The other one on the consideration that, that from a compliance real practical perspective that I kind of think of is layering on additional programs. And we know that Section 142, the average income minimum set aside was not adopted. So in that first year, there's um, some kind of important compliance components as it relates to meeting the minimum set aside for Section 142. And I think that average income could complicate that if you're not careful about how you're mapping out those designations. And Thomas, I think, is going to chat a little bit more about what the proposed regulations 
tell us about designations and just keeping that in mind as we talk through those proposed regulations as it relates to designations. And then I, I do also want to remind everyone, not like any other minimum set aside, this is very much on a project basis. So we're looking at that line 8B election. Um, and so minimum set aside, um, it really has kind of two major components with it. The first one is, is that you have to designate units in a manner to which the unit designations of the project don't exceed 60%. So I could have a one building project with 10 units and designate five units at 50% and five units at 70%. And that would give me a 60% average, assuming that is a one building, single building project. I could have that same kind of setup, but now I have two different buildings, each with five units. One has all 50% and the other has all 70%. The buildings themselves have averages that are over 60%, but because they're part of a multiple building project, the project itself has an average of 60%. This is, gets a little bit more complicated as we talk about how to meet the minimum set aside, but I did want to drive home and remind everyone that we, not unlike any other minimum set aside, are very much focused on that project election, that line 8B election. And I know a lot of those state HFAs out there are prohibiting um, anything but the multiple building election in order to mitigate some of these compliance challenges. Great. Thank you there, Stephanie. And thanks for that uh, interjection, Thomas. So we've kind of covered the average income test and how to apply it, as well as you know some other considerations with respect to the average income test. Let's turn now specifically to the IRS proposed regulations. So Thomas, if you could tell us something about what specific interpretations the IRS is proposing and the significance of those interpretations to either what we thought was the rule versus what the IRS is suggesting the rule may be. And I should have noted earlier, these are proposed regulations. So we are waiting to see what effect they will have and they will take effect when they become finalized. Thomas? Yeah, thanks, Mike. So without tipping my hand on what I think about these proposed regulations, I'm going to call it the good, the bad, and the ugly. And to be considered good in this context is a very low bar. So let's start first with the good, and that is the next available unit rule. The interpretation from the IRS. So let's first back up for a second and say, what is the next available unit rule? The next available unit rule kicks in when a tenant who is initially income qualified for your unit, if down the road a few years, their income rises above the income threshold, which we call the 140% rule. It's a little more complicated on average income, but we won't dive down into the nuances there. But once they rise above this income level, you have to rent the next available unit of comparable size or smaller to an income qualified individual. The good news is to kind of put a lot of people's fears to rest here. If you're 100% affordable, you're always applying with this next available unit rule. And so you can kind of tune out for this next two minutes. But if you're a mixed income project, that's really where this is important. If you're in a mixed income project, if a tenant rises above this level and the next available unit is a market rate unit, you have to rent that unit to an income eligible tenant. Now, in an average income project, the concern was I could have multiple units that are over income. And what would I rent that vacant unit to? Would I rent it to maybe the lowest AMI of any over income unit? Would I rent it based on the designation of the first unit to go over income? We really didn't know what the answer would be. The IRS gave us a really good answer here. They said, you pick. You can use any designation. So let's say we have a 70% unit and a 30% unit that are over income. Now we have a vacant market rate unit. You as the owner can pick, do I rent that to a 70% household or a 30% household? And so this all sounds great, but as we examine in a lot more detail on the webinar, this can still cause problems because we have different unit size issues that come into play here. Because again, remember the rule is comparable size or smaller. 
and some other kind of minor details that cause a little bit of issues here. And so even though this is a good answer, it's a pretty common sense answer that says basically pick one and use it and then kind of follow that through as you go forward. There still are some unanswered questions about the next available unit rule for mixed income projects. And as Mark has always likes to point out, I think this is a great point. You know, if we look at the QAPs of the various states, the qualified allocation plans and the compliance rules, most states were not allowing mixed income projects with this anyways. And so I think this is more of a down the road issue as investors get more comfortable with it. But I do think that as we talk about providing comments on it, that it's good to kind of point out some of these more logistical issues with this rule, even though we think they got it mainly correct. It's just there's some implementation issues. So that's the good. <laughs> then the bad has to do with designations. And so as we've talked about, in average income, we have to designate the income target for each unit. And it's the average of those designations that need to average 60%. So going back to Stephanie's example, she said five units at 50 and five units at 70, that average is 60%. And notice we're not really focused on who moved into those units because you could have a tenant who is making 60% of area median income and your only available unit is a 70% unit. They could move into that unit and you would still keep your 70% designation. So it's really focused on the designations here. And the Internal Revenue Code says the owner shall designate the units or designate the applicable income limit for each unit. And so we thought that that meant that it was up to the owner and the owner would have some kind of leeway here as to how they designate, when they designate, and if they can change those. But unfortunately, the proposed regulations tell us two things about designations. Number one, they tell us that absent any further IRS guidance, we can follow state guidance on how we designate the units. And if the state has a prescribed method, that we would follow that state's method. But it tells us that those designations have to be made by the close of the first year of the credit period. And after that point, those designations cannot change. And now this causes us problems for a couple of reasons. Number one is there's various other federal requirements that may require us to have to change a designation for a unit. The one that is kind of getting used most widely because it's probably the easiest to picture in our mind is we have a three-story walk-up apartment. The top floor unit is an 80% unit. A unit on the first floor is a 40% unit. Somebody that's making less than 80% of median income, but greater than 70% of median income comes and applies for our 80% unit. We move them in. Two years down the road, something changes in their circumstances and they're no longer able to walk up the stairs to that third story apartment. So they put in a reasonable accommodation request under fair housing. And we say, okay, that seems like a reasonable request. And so we would want to comply with the request and move them to the first floor unit. However, on our first floor, we only have a 40% unit. And that tenant makes more than 40% of area median income. So they would not be able to move transfer down to that 40% unit as the proposed regulations are currently written. And so we'd have to choose there whether we forego credits and let them transfer or we don't follow this reasonable request. And I'm not a fair housing attorney, so I'm not going to tell you what to do there. But it does kind of show you pretty easily how not being able to change the designations causes us issues. And what's interesting is that the proposed regulation talks about designating the unit. So typically when unit when tenants transfer, the unit swap status but it would appear here, absent any further guidance, that the designation stays with the unit. So it doesn't necessarily swap status there. And there's a whole host of other kind of issues with trying to comply with other programs and not being able to change the designation. Uh, you know, we have waitlist issues. But I think another big one is just trying to adjust to the market conditions. So, 
you know, when we do this in year one, we have to remember that these projects are going to be affordable for a minimum of 30 years federally, and most states require them to be affordable for 55 or more years. And so we're going to come out from the gate here and do this unit mix of X number of units at 40 or 30 and 50, 60, 70, 80, but we don't know if that's the right mix long-term for this market. There might be issues in this market that makes 30% units harder to rent in the future. Maybe minimum wage goes up to the extent that you know a, a household that's working one full-time worker wouldn't be able to qualify any longer. So having that ability to kind of respond to the market, but also respond to tenants, right? If we have a 50 and a 70 unit vacant, and two families making 60 come to us and want to move in, does it fulfill the program purpose to leave those units vacant till we find a 50 and a 70? Or would it make sense to say, okay, let's right size this to the population that's trying to move in now so we don't leave this finite resource vacant while we're trying to find that perfect tenant? So that's just some of the issues of making designations. There's more that we could talk about. And so that's the, now we've done the good, the bad. And then the final guidance is the ugly. And this is their interpretation of how non-compliance impacts the minimum set aside. And so first we have to pause and talk about the minimum set aside. As a reminder, the minimum set aside is this minimum requirement you have to satisfy to qualify for any credits at all. I think of this, you know, when you go to the carnival, you have that sign that says you must be this tall to ride this ride. And if you're taller than that, you can ride the ride. If you fall below that, you can't ride the ride. And that's how the minimum set aside works with low-income housing tax credits. You have to satisfy this minimum to qualify for any credits, but typically our projects satisfy something above and beyond that minimum set aside. And so how the IRS interpreted it, they said that if you have non-compliance with one of your low-income units, and when you once you remove that unit from your project, from your low-income units, if your remaining low-income units average above 60%, you've now failed the minimum set-aside test. And I always pause here and say, but typically we have more than 40% of our remaining units that would average less than 60%. So they've kind of conflated this minimum set aside to be a little bit more than what I think it was intended to be. And so what happens here is if you have a unit that goes out of compliance and that unit is a unit that makes it so that your average is now greater than 60%, the IRS would say you failed the minimum set-aside test. And as a reminder, if you fail the minimum set-aside test, you lose all the credits on your project. And if you fail the minimum set-aside at the close of the first year of the credit period, you lose all of the credits on your project ever. You can never qualify for credits. Now, the real issue here is that the IRS says that if you have this issue of a failing unit that causes your average of your remaining low-income units to go above 60%, there are mitigating actions you can take to correct this. But unfortunately, those mitigating actions, they have to happen within 60 days from the close of the year that, that the non-compliance occurred. And so let's look at an example here, say that this year, you accidentally moved in a tent that wasn't qualified. So that's a non-qualified unit. We have to remove that from our qualified units under these proposed regs. And now if your remaining qualified units average greater than 60%, you would have 60 days from the close of this year to take these mitigating actions that the IRS allows you to do. If you don't take those mitigating actions within that window, you fail the minimum set-aside test. But the real issue is that typically, we don't know about non-compliance till sometime well into the future. You know, we don't, in property management companies, they try to do their best and they don't intentionally move in unqualified individuals. And so usually what happens is somebody else will come look at a file, say a state agency, two or three years down the road, they'll pick this file to look at and they'll find that there is some sort of oversight or error in the file that was missed and that error causes that tenant to be over income. 
or I should say not income qualified. And so at that point, if they find this mistake two years down the road, your 60-day window to correct this non-compliance has already passed. And now there's no chance for you to come back and fix this. And so therefore, this project will lose all of its credits. And this is such a kind of catastrophic answer because of that, because now your margin of error is so razor thin that one unit going out of compliance could cause you to lose all of your credits. This is going to be a big turnoff to investors with having just that razor thin margin. Now, people will say, well, Thomas, why don't we go ahead and do some buffer units then? So what a buffer unit is, it's where instead of having your average right at 60%, you'd have your average down around 58 or 57% so that if a unit did go out of compliance, you could remove that unit from your calculation and still average less than 60%. So you wouldn't have this catastrophic failure. And that makes sense to a certain extent. But the issue is when we put in these buffer units, it reduces your average income or the amount of rent that you're collecting on your project. And so if you say, we did an example in this webinar that we just did, where we looked at saying, what happens if instead of having all of our units averaging 60%, we have all of our units average 57.5%. And this was for a project in King County. And for a 200 unit project, it resulted in a reduction in the amount of debt that the project could support by about $1.75 million. And that's a big amount of debt to reduce on a project just to comply with this average income test. And at that point, I would say, well, why are you even doing uh, average income then? You're giving up $1.75 million, which usually means that you're reducing the amount of developer fee that is paid by you know almost $2 million. That's a huge hit to the project. And so basically you're paying $2 million for insurance so that you can do average income. And so I think that kind of the key here is that this answer is so kind of catastrophic because one unit going out of compliance can cause you to fail the entire minimum set-aside test. And we really don't think this was the intent of Congress when they wrote this because this makes it so that this new minimum set-aside, the average income test, is basically not usable for tax credit projects because that margin of error is just so thin that's going to you know turn off investors because they don't want any risk. It's going to turn off developers because all the risk lies with them. They're the ones who's going to have to make the investor whole. And so truthfully, this is why I say this is the ugly, because if this stands as it is, it's basically going to make it, not to be too much hyperbole here, but I think you'll see that basically average income becomes unusable in the future if the proposed regulations stay as they are. The bad is not making designations, because that's kind of just bad for this program because it doesn't allow us to try and figure out the right unit mix and it respond to changing demographics and changing tenant needs. But the true ugly, in my opinion, is this interpretation of the minimum set-aside test that they're taking such a harsh stance against it and really ignoring the minimum nature of it and causing this catastrophic failure. And so, yeah, Mike, that's probably maybe more than you're asking for here, but that's my initial thoughts on it. No, thank you for that. Definitely like the framing of the good, which we like, even though you said you have a low bar for good. The bad, obviously, we don't like, and the ugly is really <laughs> ugly. It's really catastrophic. So it sounds like you're hearing from investors that this could really turn them off of being interested in investing in projects that are going to elect the average income set aside. Any other questions or concerns that you're hearing from clients or other colleagues in the affordable housing community? 
Yeah. So I think that, you know, I don't want to be an alarmist, but there was one investor that basically said, after we were kind of having this offline chat about this, she said, investors will never do this now. And, you know, I don't want to be an alarmist here, but I do think it raises the point that this minimum set aside was pushed through Congress through a lot of people working very hard to get it through. And now to have a proposed regulation that uh, just through a different interpretation might make it so that it's not usable would really be quite frustrating for those who spent so much effort and time to do this. So I'm hearing a lot of response is that that the IRS missed the mark and didn't realize how much of an impact this would have. And, you know, Mark's going to probably talk more about this, but just a reminder, that's why we need to respond to this and submit comments that talk through that and talk through why we think that it was wrong and also let them know other ways that could be interpreted that would give us a better answer. I would echo that. I'm just getting some feedback that there are some investors out there that just over the last couple of days have kind of paused all average income deals at this point. So I would be a bit of a more of an alarmist than Thomas might be. <laughs> Great. Thank you for that, Stephanie, which really emphasizes how it's important for us to all acknowledge that these are proposed uh-huh. uh, and not yet final. We definitely, sounds like there are some key aspects that we need to make sure get changed before the regulations were to go final. So maybe uh, at this point, we could turn to Mark. Maybe, Mark, you could share some thoughts on potentiality of getting a change to the proposed regulations as first, we want to identify what the changes should be and what you think the likelihood or probability is of getting a hearing from the IRS such that they would make changes here. So I would echo the problems laid out by Thomas as what need to change. The IRS really has just got to allow the potential flexibility of designation changes. And there's really no reason, and I recognize that I have a a bias as a former state agency person, but there's really no reason to presume that there's a need for federal limits on the shifting of designations. That's something that is entirely within the capacity of housing credit allocating agencies to monitor. They have done similar work since the beginning of the program and would have no difficulty doing it going forward. So that just has to change uh, because of the, the legal impossibilities that again, that Thomas laid out. And the other is there's got to be a different way of thinking about what it means to meet the minimum set-aside test. What I mean, What's happened with this guidance is, as I see it, the way I characterize it is they have come up with a new distinct test that, as I see it, is not something that anyone has to see in the code. And they need to appreciate that this notion of maintaining the 60% average through the units not ever being out of compliance is beyond what Congress could have ever had in mind. Because what it does is it means this option, this third option, is much more difficult to follow and much more difficult for owners to comply with. And the only way to really do so is to accept that their property generates less revenue than it would if it were a 40 at 60. And that simply can't be 
what is the should, it can't be what the outcome that Congress had in mind for this because there's really nothing in the code that supports that take. And so we need folks to make those points in their comments to the IRS. And um, as far as outcomes, the really the only guaranteed outcome is if there's not enough people that submit comments, then, they, then the IRS won't change. If, if we can get enough people, groups, organizations, firms, et cetera, to submit their input, then I think there actually is a realistic chance that they'll do something different. And the reason that I say that is because earlier this year, the IRS did an almost complete 180 on different requirements that they had. Um, is It was in the compliance context, and, and they almost completely backed off of what they had put out there. And what they backed off from were not even rules that were out for comment. They were rules that the IRS considered to be final, but they nevertheless changed them, which was really a great outcome. So I, I actually have some hope, again, that if enough people can submit comments about these issues and problems and challenges that they actually will back off of them and allow the average income test to be a viable option going forward. Great. Thank you for that, Mark. Thank you for sharing those insights. And just to remind our listeners, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the IRS is accepting comments on the proposed regulations until December 29th of this year. And the Novogratic Long Compromising Tax Credit Working Group will be submitting comments and Mark will be leading that effort in terms of our comments. So please, if you're a participant in our working group already, uh, please make sure you're sharing your thoughts uh, with Mark. And if you're not a member of the Long Compensation Tax Credit Working Group, please reach out to Mark and consider joining the group. So let me close with uh, one last question for each of you. uh, And that is, what do you think that Long Compensation Tax Credit property owners should be doing right now? Uh, We know they should be submitting comments to Treasury and they should be reaching out to us to ensure that uh, they're suggesting the right corrections. But uh, anything else that property owners should be addressing? Maybe I'll start with Stephanie can answer and then Thomas and then Mark can close on recommendations for current property owners. Sure. I would say that for those owners that have already elected average income and that have placed in service and are operating current projects under average income, maybe to kind of pause and as because we're nearing the end of the close of the year. So if this is the first year of your credit period and this is the guidance that gets proposed, really stopping and pausing and looking at your designations and your unit mix and, and doing kind of a stress test on your existing kind of mix and figuring out if these regulations proceed as is, will you meet your minimum set aside in the first year of the credit period based on all the due diligence you could possibly do up front? So it's really to those kind of existing projects that are in service using this and are trying to navigate through what does this proposed regulation of this language mean in the context of my day-to-day. So for you guys out there taking this opportunity in mid-November and figuring out where you are before the end of the year, comes. Right, Thomas, anything to add on there? Well, I would just say for taking even a step further back from Stephanie saying, if you're looking at new projects and development, maybe ask yourself why. Why are you going after average income? Because if the proposed regs stay as they are, you either are going to likely have to have a fairly large buffer unit, meaning that as opposed to being right at a 60% average, you're down around 58 or lower, or you're going to have to sit here and look at this potential catastrophic non-compliance hanging over your head for the entire life of the project. Just maybe ask yourself, why are you doing average income then? Would your project work as a 4060? And I think that under that scenario, probably the only people who would choose to go forth average income are people who are doing rad conversions where they have tenants that are greater than 60, but less than 80. But because of 
how their program works, they probably have a fairly large buffer built into their project already. And any future unit would probably be rented to somebody at 50% or lower. And so you probably, your non-compliance risk is probably a lot smaller. I think that you'll probably see a lot of people saying, if I have to be at 58%, I might as well just go as a straight 40-60 project and be able to get 60% rents across my project as opposed to an average of 58. So I think that you're just going to see a lot of people pausing and saying, why am I underwriting a new project this way with this big a non-compliance risk hanging over my head? Definitely less of a tool, Thomas, I think, than we originally thought it would be if it goes through like this. I would agree. Great. Thank you for those insights as well. And Mark, any last comments to share? Well, just to note that I can understand some listeners think the, about s- submitting formal comments to the IRS about how they're wrong is a bit daunting and not something that anyone would really want to do. I get that. It's, it, it's natural to some folks and not so much to others. But if, if you've listened to this far into the podcast, then you really do care about this issue and you need to step up and do your part. And it doesn't have to be formal or fancy. It doesn't, you don't even have to have complete sentences. You just need to let the IRS know what you think. And, um, and again, we're happy to help with that if we can. Great. Thank you uh, for that, Mark. And thank you also, Thomas and Stephanie. I appreciate the three of you joining me on the podcast today and sharing your insights on this important and timely and quite technical matter. Uh, I do look forward to having you all three back on the podcast after comment letters have been submitted to Treasury and we gain some insights into how these proposed regulations might change. And then to our listeners, I again want to share the reminder that I will include in today's show notes links to the Average Income Test webinar, blog post, and journal subscription page that I mentioned earlier. And probably the most important, I'll share contact information for Thomas, Stephanie, and Mark So you can reach out to them directly with questions. This is a very technical topic, and you had three of the nation's experts on this topic on this podcast today, and definitely reach out to them if we can be of assistance. And as I also noted, please, if you're not already a member, consider joining the Novogratic Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Working Group. And then I'll close with just by reminding everyone to subscribe to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast if you haven't already. That way you'll be notified as soon as new episodes are posted. And Tax Credit Tuesday is available to stream at www.novaco.com slash podcast, as well as you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. With all of that said, that's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.